she was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm Sarah Gorski, and I am so excited to have a new special guest who has never guested before, my good friend, Mr. Darren Callahan. Hi, Darren. Hello, Sarah. Great to be here. Listeners, you might be familiar with that name because Darren is the composer of our theme music on this podcast. You've heard his name and you've heard his music, and now you're going to hear about one of his favorite broads. Yes, we're going to talk a little bit about Nancy Dowd, who is still with us and is an amazing screenwriter, really known for work in the 70s and 80s. So we're going to touch upon her story. Yeah. Darren, what was your inspiration for the theme music for this podcast? I'm going to dig into your artistic process. Sure. Yeah. Um, You know, I'm a screenwriter and playwright and novelist. I'm mostly known as a writer. But in the 90s, I was really known as a musician. A rock star. You're a rock star. You can say it. Slash rock star. All right. So I will. (laughs) Feel free to Google me. I had been going through a period of two or three years of real intense writing. I had knocked out a lot of scripts. So I have a lot of uh, empathy for Miss Dowd. The point is, I went back to music. I decided I really wanted to write songs again. So I started to do some demos of some speculative material. One of those I happened to talk to this podcast about, and it was a clip I had, so it became the theme music of this. That clip has since been extended to a fully realized song with a band I'm producing. So we nicked it for a song of theirs called Anxiety Pills. But that band is called The Loud Bangs. It's a Los Angeles-based shoegaze band. If you're familiar with bands like My Bloody Valentine or Lush or Rock. It's basically very noisy pop music named after the fact that when you're in a shoegaze band, you have a lot of guitar pedals and people usually look at their shoes when they play it. And am I correct in thinking that it's a family affair? Isn't your daughter in that band too? No, my daughter is actually was in a band. The band has since gone the way of the dodo. I'm mixing the bands up. Some people do that because my daughter sang on a special one-off single with the Loud Bangs. Oh. Yeah, my, my daughter, Charlotte Callahan, has a couple records out. She's a teenager. She's amazing. Can verify, uh, can verify. Yeah, yeah. As is my son, Liam. He's also a musician and has several records out. But Charlotte had a band called Boys and Cults with the niece of one of the bangles. Two of the bangles, actually, because two are sisters. Someday I'm going to convince her to come on this podcast, too. She is a broad you should know, for sure. <laughs> I, she, your whole family is. Your wife is a broad you should know as well. Anyway, I'm a huge fan of the Callahan family. So, Well, I'm really excited to hear about Nancy Dowd. You know, I had to look her up when you mentioned that you wanted to cover her because I didn't know her name. That being said, I'm not the best with like name memory, but she's not. She wrote a lot, you said, in the 70s and 80s? Yes, and that was her prime period. She's still active. Now she's older and you know how Hollywood is with old anything. So, you know, screenwriters, male and female, both usually retire around 50, 55, but she is still working from time to time and you may see her name up, but she uses a lot of pseudonyms now and she did actually do that in the 80s. So I actually didn't recognize that she was so consistently great and that she had a unique voice and a unique sound. Like she she was a phenomenon and I didn't really know that 
about her until this is so inside baseball, but on, (laughs) on Facebook, I'm a fan of a group that posts old newspaper ads of movies. I know that's Hmm. a weird little collector thing. (laughs) It's very niche. Truly not that niche. There's actually a whole book called Ad Nauseum. It's a cocktail book that has pictures of old newsprint movie ads. And I like that so much. I went and signed up for this Facebook group. I love it. Anyway, one of the newsprint ads came up for Slapshot and I had never even though I had seen Slapshot, her primary movie, I had never seen that it was written by Nancy Doubt. And that just stood out to me, and we'll talk about it a little bit. Because if you've seen Slapshot, it's very... it's a dude bro masculine. movie. It's a yeah. masculine movie. And I just thought it was amazing. And what a great script that it was written by a female. So I got curious about what's the story here. And we'll talk about that today. Yes. Okay. Well, let's dig right in. So Nancy Dowd, uh, let me uh, pull a quick bio here for you. She was born in 1945 in Framingham, Massachusetts. So that's very far from Hollywood. Uh, mm-hmm. She's not the daughter of anybody. You know, she had no connections whatsoever, but she did decide to go to UCLA film school in her 20s, which I have to say, uh, maybe this generation doesn't recognize it because there are many great film schools all around the nation now, Mm. and they take very diverse student population. At the time when she was in her 20s, so if she's born in 45, this is the mid 60s, film schools were rare. Uh, There were only like USC and UCLA, and they had very small programs and they didn't take many students. So the fact that they took a young scrapper from the (laughs) East Coast, working class families, all the way across the country into the school is pretty amazing. And that was the beginning of film for her. She always loved film. She always went to film. She wanted to make it her career as a screenwriter, but she was a factory kid. You know, she was just one of those people whose family worked in the factory. They lived near factories. Factories were often going out of business and disrupting communities as the industrial boom uh, ebbed and swayed throughout time. But she had this talent and it was clearly recognized very early on. But I want to really emphasize the fact that the tell a quality story, you do have to put your soul into it. And for all the films we'll talk about here today, you feel where Nancy is from. Even if it was a a rewrite she did or something like that, it is her. Nancy Dowd was her own writer. She was as interesting as any contemporary screenwriter then or even now. As a matter of fact, I made a, a little list here. I wondered before Nancy Dowd, were there many female screenwriters? Nothing came to mind. But There were several. Francis Goodrich, who wrote The Thin Man and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and Easter Parade. Anita Luce, who wrote Gentlemen Before Blondes, the book that that was based on and then turned into a movie. Joan Harrison wrote Rebecca. Lee Brackett, who many people know from The Empire Strikes Back, actually wrote The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye. And then there were many people after Nancy Dowd, people like Nora Ephron, Elaine May, Gloria Katz, uh, who wrote American Graffiti around that time with Willard Hike. So obviously these are amazing, classic, well-regarded films and many of them award-winning and some of them award-winning for their script, but it's Mm -hmm. still unusual to see a woman, particularly if they're writing a script that is from a man's world, seemingly. Mm -hmm. I I could argue that Slapshot has, you know, a pretty good 50-50 split between the male stories and the female stories within it. Yeah, but I would say like, I was just watching it in preparation for this because I had never seen it. And I would say that Slapshot is like, you wouldn't know it was written by a woman because it, it does have kind of a very male gaze type approach. Like one of the women is like, like exploring her bisexuality and like, you know, but in the, yeah. in the form of lesbianism, because that was the only word they knew how to use in the seventies. And like, sure. I would have been surprised as well if I, if I didn't know already that the, the writer was a woman, because it does feel very dude-ish. 
Well, actually, let me tell you my backstory on Slapshot. I played hockey, ice hockey, in Dayton, Ohio, where I lived for about 10 years. So I was in Little League hockey because Dayton had a great league. Yeah. And you don't knock your teeth out in Little League, right? Little League hockey's a little calmer. <laughs> well, let, my brother actually fell on the ice because you weren't, you didn't have to wear helmets back in the 70s. He fell face <laughs> forward onto the ice and the poor guy burst his teeth and lip open. Oh. And after then, we all had to wear helmets, um, rightfully so. But anyway, during that time period, Slapshot came out. And all the coaches thought it'd be cool to do a movie day, not having previewed it. Oh, my God. They brought the kids? They brought the kids to the big cinema in Dayton. not appropriate movie. No, no. And a matter of fact, it was, uh, it was only the second R-rated film I had ever seen. I had seen Blazing Saddles before that, which is a lot gentler. Slapshot, <laughs> its message is a little harder to detect, especially if you're a child and you just want to see the hockey. Because there's very little hockey in the movie, but there's an awful lot of fighting. Mm-hmm. It's really about hockey violence and the, the gladiator spectacle that could sell more tickets from that violence. Mm-hmm. Back, back then, you know, hockey was gentle in Dayton area hockey leagues. But anyway, we all went to see this movie. We went back to playing hockey and then we were checking and fighting and doing all the things we saw in Slapshot. So so uh, they laid down a bunch of new rules. You couldn't check anymore, which is when you slam somebody against the board. Oh. You know, you couldn't do a lot of those things you see in the film. And thank God, because we would have all ended up with our faces flat on the Were ice. you like yelling terrible things to the opposing teams like they do in Slapshot? Oh, like, all, yeah, all of Yeah, your wife's a lesbian, blah, blah, blah. And they get these big fights. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of bad manners. The film, I believe, uh, you have to get to the last frame is an anti-violence movie, Hmm. but it holds its cards very close where you often think that it is pro-violence. As a matter of fact, the first scene in the film is a hockey player explaining all the rules of hockey, but he's not talking about maybe one. It's just like Mm -hmm. a rule that is a non-violent penalty. Then he goes into all the violence. And this is the first scene in the movie, which goes to show you how great she was. It's pretty funny, too, because the reporter he's explaining him to keeps, like, jumping. Like, every time he swings his stick, he's, like, jumping backward. It's pretty funny. Uh, That is actually one of the audio clips we have. Uh, What is high sticking? High sticking happens when uh, the guy takes the stick, you know, and he go like that. You know, you don't do that. You don't do that. Oh, no, never, never. Why not? Against the rules. You know, you're stupid when you do that. Just some English pig with no Uh, brain at all, uh, you know. What is uh, slashing? Slashing is um, like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a penalty for that? Yeah. It's the first scene. And it's interesting to start because you need, as a writer, to explain the rules of hockey to an audience who's never seen hockey. And the way that Mm. they're explaining the rules is just enough to get you through why all of this is bad. Because Mm. it sets the stage that these moves in hockey are rare they're penalty worthy and they're dangerous. And yet you will now see them for two straight hours. Uh, all those bad moves, which I think is pretty funny. Now, I've only seen the film four times. I saw it at that time when I was young. And then I saw it uh, maybe in my late 20s. And I realized, man, this film is mean. And therefore, I don't like it. I thought it had a fun spirit, but it actually has quite a cruel spirit. And I was really turned off by it. And I didn't watch it again until I caught it on late night TV, probably about 10 years ago. And um, I was like, maybe I misjudged this. Maybe I was in a foul mood that day because despite the 
gladiator atmosphere of it, there are some wonderful character moments. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you notice it, the men are all sort of apish, but the men are not without reason for being that way. And they're also, they don't take out their apishness on the females. Um, They keep it on the ice. Now they do have a little bit of misogyny and homophobia and locker room talk, as you would say in the sports biz. But you know, when they are interacting, they're actually quite sweet, sometimes to each other, sometimes to other characters, older, younger, male, female. You could have gone a different way where this movie actually would be very, very cruel. But the fact that the violence is so constant is um, jarring. You know what also struck me too watching it was that I just the characters just felt very three dimensional. Whereas I think like a lot of like sports movies, dudish movies, I feel like the characters are all all be kind of become caricatures of right. real people. Whereas I felt like these characters in Slapshot just felt like they felt like I knew them. Like I've met that guy back at Four Moon in Chicago. Like I, I've met these people before. And in a way that I, I don't often see, I feel like from movies of that time period. And you know, it's funny though. Paul Newman says this is the best role he ever had. I, I, I don't personally agree because I love the verdict, but I see what he's saying here because he's the leader of this team and he's actually not that bright, but he gets some good ideas. He's not a very good coach. He's not a very good leader for this team. He sets a bad example quite often. But he's also like pretty willing to try things and to listen. For example, the scene you mentioned with Melinda Dillon. So Melinda Dillon and he uh, are in bed together, casual lovers. She's actually undressed. Yes. She gives a speech about where she is in her life and then admits to him for the first time that she's also been with women. And he doesn't like degrade her or chide her. He just literally listens to her tell the story of how that came to be. That kind of perspective is really interesting because you hear a lot of male screenwriters write the female experience. And Mm -hmm. uh, I have as a, as a male writer, I enjoy writing female characters. Why can't a female screenwriter in that time write a male experience from their eyes? And when you see it through the eyes of somebody as wise and and rich in writing as Nancy Dowd, even with all the spectacle, even with all the blood, you do get a sense that there's real humanity here. It's not a caricature of how men Mm -hmm. behave. It is stylized to how that particular community of men behave. Mm -hmm. And that leads us back to Nancy's knowledge to write this script. So Nancy Dowd's brother, Ned Dowd, was a hockey player. He was also a college graduate and a very smart guy. He joined a small hockey league similar to the Charlestown Chiefs. He was um, he brought his sister along, Nancy, to these <laughs> things. And she got to witness all the interactions and all the real occurrences of men who played hockey in a small-time male league. What it took to fund the team, what it took to get people in seats, what it took to win the game. And of course, all the rivalries with other players and hopes and dreams and everything around this. So she covers all the angles in a hour and 45 minute movie in a way that is pretty rich. So that third viewing, I really got way more out of it. And again, I'm just, I'm amazed that a film that is pretty much like marketed as Caddyshack or something like that actually does have all these wonderful dramatic scenes that where you can see Paul Newman would be into it. That actually kind of surprises me. That was his favorite role. Maybe because I haven't finished the movie yet. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) I'll understand more when I finish it. Well, there are many reasons an actor might like a script. One of them is to do something different. And, you know, he had just already been directed by the same director, George Roy Hill, in two of his biggest movies, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting. To be able to play this guy by that same director, it's quite a reversal because he's 
I wouldn't really want to hang out with that Paul Newman of the Charlestown <laughs> Chiefs. So um, he does seem like uh, we probably wouldn't get along that good. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but he's he's not an evil man or anything. Yeah, he's very excellent. It's it's very unlike other roles I feel like I've seen him him do. So you know, let me just point out here that Nancy Dowd probably uh, planned this in the script. You don't actually see a fight until 37 minutes in, but I, I timed this. These are fights between <laughs> hockey team members. Fight one, 37 minutes. Fight two, 45 minutes in. Fight three, 49 minutes in. <laughs> fight four, 58 minutes. Fight five, an hour 23. So there's a little break there because you just had five fights within five minutes of each other for the run time. <laughs> Then it, you know, the ending, it's just there's those uh, fight six, seven, eight, and nine are all like five minutes apart towards the end of the movie, including the climactic championship winning game, which is the climax of the film where they decide not to fight at all and just really play hockey as it's meant to be played. And then, of course, hmm. they're losing quite badly uh, in the first set. But the fact that it is, uh, you know, a male story from the perspective of a female writer was kind of interesting, but it's not actually her first script. Nancy Dowd, you know, when she graduated from UCLA, she wrote a spec script called Buffalo Ghost, Hmm. Um, and Jane Fonda's company really liked it. So she was looking to develop something based on Vietnam and Buffalo Ghost was uh, about Vietnam and about being wounded in the war and, and returning to your loved ones, a different person. Uh, hmm. It was considered kind of a spec script for her. She didn't really think it would be made, but as time went on, she and Jane Fonda became friendly. I don't know if I'd say good friends. And then it started to move like it was going to get made. And Nancy was uh, rewritten by two men, one of which Waldo Salt was brought before the House on american Activities Committee, and he was blacklisted for a number of years. Mm. So he was coming out of the blacklist period to rewrite Nancy's script. And mm. at that point, Nancy started to get kind of angry about it. Uh, she didn't think Waldo was a very good writer, even though he was very mm. well credentialed. He had been around a long time and written a lot of classics, but he hadn't written something like this. And clearly she had a, a vision for it. So they rewrote it and it became the script Coming Home, which won the Oscar in 1978 uh, for Best Original Screenplay. And so Nancy's Oscar from Coming Home is sort of a bitter pill because even though a lot of what is in the movie was hers, they reduced her to story only credit and gave the two uh. men the prime credit. It brought about great conflict with Jane Fonda to the point where they were sort of spatting with each other. And then, as a matter of fact, Nancy Dowd and Vanity Fair wrote a scathing piece about Jane Fonda. Whoa, a public fight. Yeah. so That's a certain level of like deep dig that, that doesn't happen very much, I feel like, or at least anymore. Yes. Or maybe it does. I guess that's just like Taylor Swift and Kanye, right? <laughs> yes, it, it was... Uh... You know, Hollywood kind of inside baseball because no one cares what the screenwriter thinks most of the time, but because it was with Jane. So I can see how this goes down. I've been lucky never to be caught in a giant fight. But basically, here's what Nancy said about Waldo. Waldo Salt was not fired because he had a heart attack. Waldo Salt had never written an original screenplay in his life and faced with the task, he had failed. He was drunk. He was drunk at the Writers Guild Awards when he made an ass of himself. And he was drunk at the Academy Awards where his acceptance speech, like his his script was incomprehensible. He was in over his head. 
So Nancy wrote that. Yeah. So she in Vanity Fair is pulling no punches. And the same applies to Jane Fonda. She says, it's not easy to stand up to a woman as vindictive, vicious, and commercially ubiquitous as Jane Fonda, but I'm glad I did. Her campaign against me, well-documented, caused me deep humiliation and grief. Thanks to my undeniable talent, I survived. And one of the things she later says is, I don't collaborate. (laughs) So she's like, (laughs) the fact that she had a co-Academy Award with these guys is a deep scar for her. Did she ever win another Academy Award for a different script? No. In some ways, that's kind of a shame because Slapshot was not a commercial success. So she Mm. then moved to other films, somewhat smaller films. But I got to tell you about one film that she wrote. So 78 was coming home. And she became sort of a rewrite person. As a rewriter, you're not getting all the credit, but you're still adding your talent to it. And it's funny, all the movies she rewrote are all excellent. And her work is hard to detect within it sometimes, but there are other times you're like, oh, that's Nancy Dowd's voice. In the same way, Quentin Tarantino rewriting um, Crimson Tide. You can be like, oh, that's Silver Surfer stuff. That's Quentin. During that period, she uh, rewrote Straight Time, North Dallas 40, Ordinary People, Cloak and Dagger, and White Nights came later. But she um, kept going as a rewrite person. But in that, she wrote two original scripts that were picked up. One was called Swing Shift. If it's about how women change, then why are you so interested in why she leaves her husband and goes off with this guy when the central relationship in the movie mm-hmm. is her friendship with Christine Lottie? One of the, At the, begin- one of the That's the most important one. At the beginning of the movie, she thinks Christine Lottie is a tramp because she yeah. goes out with a nightclub owner. She's a nice little housewife. Right. At the end of this movie, they found sisterhood. They found friendship. They can respect each other as individuals. Right. The last shot of the movie doesn't have her hugging her husband or her lover. Right. It has her hugging her new friend and i think that's extremely important right and that's the discovery that goes on in this movie not your desire that uh, the husband play another one of these spurned and jilted scenes or that the lover explain something about why he's so desirable no i think i think that if you're going to have her make this key a decision i think people want to know or at least this person mm-hmm. wanted to know why she goes for this guy in other words the movie is on a the movie is taking some interesting an interesting look at this time and I think it would be a better film if it didn't just have sort of this cute meat where they she punches oh, him with the drill see, that's and then not that's oh not, I think that's what it is see, I think it's movie it's, liking movie liking rather not, than the, a real the, life the, the, her decision to have an affair was not a key decision in the movie it's just going by the ropes everybody oh, I think else is having affairs I think the key decision oh, no, in the movie the is decision. for her to learn to think about other women in a different way that's And another was called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. I actually mentioned Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains at a different podcast because it's such a curio. It's a Diane Lane film. I think it may be her first. She was 15. It's about um, sort of a punk rock girl in a factory town who starts a punk rock band and gets actually hooked onto a local tour as the third act uh, and then finds out people really love her and she becomes the headliner with the other bands relegated to opening for her. Also like Slapshot, there's another interview that begins the film. And uh, if you want to listen to this clip, uh, it's um, indicative of Nancy Dow's perspective as a woman talking to the male world uh, yeah, in the form of the reporter. It. Who's that? My mom. Beautiful. How old was your mom? When she died? Yes. 38. And she died of lung cancer? It's what they call it. What do you call it? Breathing. When did she die? Six months ago. Your mother died of lung cancer and you smoked. Each cigarette cuts a day away from your life. 
Your father was never around? Your father is dead. Beep. He was in the army. Beep. Means you get more money. Beep. A good day. What goals did your mother have in life? I don't know. We can call her and ask. Here you are. You're just sitting around at home wasting time. I wouldn't call it a waste of time. What about love? I'm too far gone for love. Well, so long as you're alive, I mean... You know, I mean, we can sit around here and waste our precious time philosophizing about love and make it sound terrific. But what it boils down to is that we're just a bunch of horny dogs. <laughs> That's um, uh, Diane Lane uh, in the very first scene of Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Uh, the performances, the casting, the things that happen to Diane Lane as a person in this, and certainly her character is so rich. Christine Lottie is also in this as one of her early films, and she's got a monologue about, I never treated my daughter very well. She's the mom of Diane Lane. And I realized I was never treated very well as a, as a woman. And it's probably the most rich, pure mom-daughter confession scene, although it, there's a TV camera when she says it, uh, that I've ever seen on film. It's a really delicate. And Christine Lottie, who is so wonderful in this scene, is also in Swing Shift, the later movie. So huh. that's two Nancy Dowd scripts she's in. The film has an early Laura Dern. She's uh, Diane Lane's best friend. Uh, she's oh. like 15 as well. Very young. Writer Nancy Dowd was unsatisfied with the editing and the final cut. So at the very last minute, she changed huh. it to be Rob Morton as the screenwriter. So I did not realize this was her for a long time, even though so I she seen took her. her name off it. Yeah. And what's weird, and I don't know the reason behind this, I could not find any reason behind it. She went under a male pseudonym, which I think is really interesting because she was like, I'm dissatisfied with it. It's not worthy of a woman's voice, maybe. Or maybe she thought if this comes out under a man's name, it'll be more successful. Or maybe the uh, uh, the, the message about how a young teenage girl has struggles in the world is going to be more regarded from a man. I really, I wish I knew the answer to that question. Why didn't she choose a pseudonym that was a female pseudonym if she was dissatisfied? She went with Rob Morton. Wow. And she went again as Rob Morton for uh, the follow-up film, which was Swing Shift with Kurt Russell and uh, Goldie Hawn. And then she went as Ernest Morton, still using the Morton last name, for sort of her last significant one, which was a late 80s Richard Dreyfuss movie called Let It Ride. Mm. Let It Ride is a very haphazard directed, very shoddy film in a lot of ways. But um, the script mm. is incredibly good. Again, the, there's never a problem with the script. Where she's gotten screwed, it sounds like a little bit from production uh, along the way, with the exception of Slapshot, which is pretty authentically produced to the script. Gosh, that's so interesting that she changed her name. It kind of blows my mind because don't you want credit for your work even... You know, even if it's not 100% perfect, that kind of, is that common with writers? I guess I'd never had heard of that before. You know, I've, I've never done it myself because I'm such a publicity hound that I've never said, <laughs> take my name off. I actually like talking shit about the stuff I don't like, but it's very few. I've seen a couple of stage productions of my work where I'm kind of like, uh, okay, uh, that wasn't how I would do it necessarily. And I'm not talking about any of my flagship productions because all the ones that were really fully produced are great. I'm talking about some readings or some other things um, where I'm like, mm, okay, mm. but I've never thought. Well, you know, it's a collaborative art. 
I don't think I'll take my name off, but in the world of Hollywood where you're protective of your next project, you're protective of your reputation, perhaps you were thinking there's something else around the corner that'll be better and I don't want to be associated with this thing now. Uh, there mm. could be a lot of reasons, but I think it's it's such an enigmatic thing for a screenwriter to make these choices. I wish there was more detail about why. Because now when you look on, I just pulled up her IMDb page and it does list those credits and then it says as Rob Morton, as Ernest Morton, but it's still connected on her page, you know? So it's like in the digital era, I imagine it's, it's kind of harder to, you know, to, to like pretend it's not <laughs> your own credit, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I wonder what she would have been served by a more diverse set of directors. Cause you know, directors, particularly in that time was almost exclusively male as well. What would Elaine mm -hmm. May have done with one of her scripts? You know, uh, what would Sofia Coppola do with one of her scripts? Now, I don't actually think of her as necessarily a feminist writer in, in that way, although she's regarded in that, uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains is considered sort of a manifesto for teenage girls. I think she can own that and be proud of that. And, and that evidence is certainly there. But I wonder if she personally feels a responsibility here or if it matters because she writes male characters so well too and so complicated that it almost feels like this is a human statement and not necessarily a feminist statement around it. And so there's some universality to what she does that I like. And, and I think about yeah. somebody like uh, Margaret Atwood. Now, I adore Margaret Atwood, and uh, her writing is is incredibly good. And she's so hot right now again. Right, yes, exactly. After, since Handmaid's Tales come back as a show. But when I read her work, I feel like I am a bad person as a male, because all the male characters are just dreadful heels. And even think about something like Thelma and Louise that was written by a, a woman screenwriter. You know, the male, all the male characters are complete assholes in that film. They're all very nefarious. Mm. And uh, it's interesting to see Nancy Dowd doesn't really go there. There may be some villainous attributes to some of the males, but there's some villainous attributes to the females too. So uh, yeah. she's a very fair player and all that. And I don't know if she felt like she had to be or that people would call her out or if that's just her style and her worldview. Yeah. Well, you know, when you think about like, um, you know, I don't know how much you've <laughs> probably not dug in as much as I have, but when you follow kind of like the, what the various waves of feminism and types of feminism that have existed, you know, there definitely was like a wave of feminism that was much more focused on man hating for lack of a better word. And it seems now, you know, in fourth wave and fifth wave feminism that we've, we've moved past that. And, but I think there's still obviously people who will feel that way. And, and there's a lot of evidence <laughs> to say that we deserved a lot of that. And so I appreciate people kind of coming out fist raised for those early, particularly early works where like, what the hell? I have a story to tell too. You see it with all kinds of communities now that it really brings diversity into the language and the art and the the place and the yeah. funding and, and the, the recognition. And I hope it just continues to expand because the fact that it was so narrow to white dudes for a hundred years is complete bullshit anyway. But I don't know Nancy Dowd's perspective on this. There's no, I, there's nothing I could find that she made any big statement. When I read about Nancy Dowd's statements, she's more like a, uh, she's got her fist out for art, <laughs> you know, the vision of the screenwriter yeah. having some sacred place. I love that. What a great pick for your broad, Darren. She's an, an amazing woman writing in a time where not a lot of women were writing. Well, they were writing. They just weren't getting big budget box office Paul Newman movies <laughs> handed to them. Uh, they were probably writing some amazing stuff. It's glad that there was some breakthrough on it. And again, she 
you could say, well, she fulfilled the promise of Slapshot because she won an Oscar for coming home. But when you read about the bitter backstory there, it feels like, you know, it's pale. But then, you know, Swing Shift is a, is a good film. And ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains is a fantastic script that is a real daring piece. I yeah. agree with all of Nancy's complaints about that movie uh, <laughs> in terms of editing and, and, you know, just being cohesive, but nothing wrong with the writing. And she said she's still alive today, right? She's still today. She uh, lives in Paris, I believe. She lived in the Caribbean for a number of years, or Caribbean, however you want to say it. And uh, uh, <laughs> so she's no longer sitting next to a factory, but that working class blue collar life informed her rewrites and her original screenplays and uh, uh, the one app adaptation she did, Let It Ride. She feels like a legitimate factory town dreamer who made it out, made it big, and still told the stories of those working people in a very respectful way. Mm -hmm. And in the words of one of the characters in Slapshot, quote, she's a great broad. <laughs> she uses that word in the script. <laughs> she does. She does. Actually, if you ever see 10, there's a big debate about the word broad between uh, Dudley Moore and um, Julie Andrews. There, there's uh. a like a 10 minute fight about the word broad uh, in that. So uh might be worth checking out. Oh, that seems like right up our alley here on Broads You Should Know. There you go. There you go. Well, thank you so much for guesting today, Darren. It was great listening to the story of Nancy Dowd. And now I want to go look up all those movies and, and uh, do her some honor by checking her workout. To learn more about Nancy Dowd, see pictures of her and clips from some of her films, head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, click on over to the About page to read more about Darren and myself. Our bios, pics, links to all our cool stuff is all right there. Are you following Broads You Should Know on social yet? We're on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. If you're a fan of this podcast, please help spread the word about us. Share your favorite episode with your friends and family, or better yet, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed hearing about Nancy Dowd, then you might enjoy some of the other broads we've covered from the entertainment industry, including the first female director, Alice Guy Blachet, Daria Nicolodi, who revamped the horror film industry, Jennifer Nelson, the director who brought Happy Birthday into public domain, and Verity Lambert, who produced Doctor Who. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know.